The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. We're going to be looking at just two verses today in chapter 2, 13, and 14, but these verses are loaded with doctrine. Now, let me give a warning here to start out with. Those of you that are Arminian, I was Arminian for the first five years of my Christian life. I hated Calvinists. I thought they were of the devil. I was just, you know, and then I became one. Funny what study will do. Um, You know, I just, I held that position and I just thought what they believed was wrong, but the more, you know, when you're teaching verse by verse, that can be a problem because you come to verses that you can't ignore, you can't skip over, and they change the way you think about something. So if you're an Arminian, I just ask you this morning, um, please just listen to what I have to say, okay? And then if you have some issues with some of the things I'm saying, email me, text me, tell me where I'm wrong, what I'm missing, tell me how you see it differently, and uh, we'll have a discussion. We've been looking at this chapter in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We looked at the first 12 verses. And these verses, in these verses, we learned that the Thessalonians were troubled. They were anxious. They were upset because they were hearing words. They, were, they received a letter supposedly from Paul that the day of the Lord had come. People, that is so informative if you get that, okay? Because if they're thinking the day of the Lord came, that means. They're not thinking the day of the Lord is the end of the world like most Christians today think. Okay? That's what most people think. The the day of the Lord is the end of the world. Everything's destroyed. The the earth, the skies, everything. People all burned up. Okay? They couldn't be thinking that. You do realize that, right? Because they wouldn't be questioning it. They'd be gone. (laughs) All right? But if they're looking out the window and the earth's still there, they're like, hey, something's going on here. Did the day of the Lord come? And Paul tells them, no, not at all. Okay? The day of the Lord hadn't come yet, and he tells him it won't come until the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Then once he's revealed, he says, the Lord is going to kill him with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So he talks about divine judgment. Once this man of sin is revealed, this man of lawlessness, he's going to be destroyed. So now we come to verses 13 and 14. And the context here is a prayer to God for His initiating and electing grace in the lives of the Thessalonian Christians, which stands in dramatic contrast to the previous verses. Let's back up and look at these two verses. Excuse me. He said, Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they believe the lie in order that... Why did God send them a delusion? Why do you want them to believe, believe a lie? In order that... That's a purpose clause. In order that He... They might be condemned. God wanted to judge them. He wanted to condemn them. So He sent them to lie. And then He says He identifies them this way, who did not believe the truth. So Paul now reassures these new converts that they're not going to be part of this great apostasy. Because God has loved them and chosen them for salvation from the beginning. God called them not for judgment but so they may gain the glory of the Lord Yeshua, the Christ. 
Now, verse 13, he says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Now, the but here is a very strong adversative. There's a contrast here between what we just read about these people who are going to be condemned and these people who are forever loved. So Paul and his, his team basically are giving thanks for this drastic difference between these other people and them and the glorious future of the Thessalonian believers that's now described in verse 13 and 14. And notice here how Paul mentions all three members of the Trinity. He talks about God, the Lord, the Spirit. He doesn't pause. He doesn't try to explain this because he obviously had taught them this already. He just goes on. All right, so... This is something they knew. Paul often alludes to the Trinity like this. Now he says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you. And he combines here the present tense continuous of aphelo, which means to owe or be indebted, and the adverb pontote at all times. And he's trying to stress the point of their Paul's obligation to recognize the gracious and loving work of God in the salvation of these men. Paul's just saying, we, we're obligated to give thanks to God for you. Because it's just amazing what God has done in your life. Now, these two verses, in these two verses, we see something that we don't often see together in verses like this. In these verses, I see what is called in theology the ordo salutis. How many of you are familiar with that term? Ordo salutis. Good, some of you. All right, it simply means the order of salvation. Okay, it's a logical order of salvation. God does this, then this happens, and this happens. So we're going to kind of look through this today um, and see these steps of salvation. It just lays them out logically. But more importantly, it has to do with who made the first move in our salvation. Because the wide spectrum of modern Christianity insists that every saved person had to make the first move. They got to do it. They got to go find God because He's lost and they're seeking Him out. They find Him. They reached out to God in faith. That's how they see it. Reformed theology, by contrast, maintains that the first move is God's. <clears throat> now, this issue of the Ordo Salutis is just not some tedious technicality technicality like the riddle which came first the chicken or the egg it actually answers the question to whom do we give glory for our salvation God or ourselves do we pat ourselves on the back man I was pretty smart I believe the gospel I'm smarter than you you're dumb you didn't believe it and that's an important question the Bible contains a unified system of truth and when we make an error <clears throat> in an area of our theological understanding of the Word of God, that error doesn't remain in isolation for long. The error cascades through our theology, and if not halted at some point, produces greater and greater falsehood. Theological error is not just an intellectual issue. Theological error can result in condemnation. At the very least, it quickly spills over into the way we live our Christian lives. B.B. Warfield said that a mutilated gospel produces mutilated lives. I agree with that. Bad theology is a cruel taskmaster. 
And this principle is especially important in understanding the doctrine of salvation. This is something we gotta be, we gotta be understanding. This is something we have to be right on because we're talking about salvation. There's a lot of side issues the scripture talks about. You can be wrong, you can be, have different opinions on that, but when it comes to salvation, we need to understand what it's about. And I think a proper understanding of the order of salvation, uh, will help us understand this. So what does the Bible teach about the Ordo Salutis? Well, if somebody asks you that, they say, where does the Bible teach the Ordo Salutis? Where would you go? Thank you. Romans 8. Okay, because Romans 8 lays out a logical order. And that's where I would normally go. Romans 8, 29, 30. Just got a progression there you can't get over, okay? It lays out the logical sequence of the doctrines of salvation. But what I found out now is that you could also go to 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14. Because we see that same thing there. Let's compare these texts. <clears throat> Let's look at Romans. He says, for those he foreknew, he also predestined. So foreknowledge has the idea of loving beforehand. He predestined. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. It's an unbroken chain. That's a broad outline of the order of salvation. And the sequential order that is given is foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, glorification. So the acts of salvation were presented in this passage, but they're not exhaustive. There's other things, and we'll add that as we go along here. But we also see this order in our text. We have the beloved, we have the chose, we have the saved, we have the called, we have the glory. Let's... Um, I'm going to put these two passages together so we can see what we're talking about here. Um, in our text, it's beloved. In the Romans text, it's foreknowledge. They both deal with love, same thing. And then we have predestination, which is the same thing as choosing. And then we have called on both of them. And we have justified and saved, same thing. And then the final thing is glorified. So they both start with love. They both end with glorification. All the elements of Romans 8 are here, just not in the strict order. Now, the first thing we see in the Ordo Salutis, and this is what we have to understand, it starts with the love of God. All right? That's where it begins. That's where salvation begins, in the love of God. And in 2 Thessalonians 2.13, he says, We had always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord. And beloved is the perfect passive participle form of agapao. And this is what we would call an intensive perfect, because it stresses being loved as an abiding state resulting from a past action. So in the past, God loves us, and He still does love us. And believer, if ever He loved us, He loved us forever. It's nothing will ever change. As believers in Christ, having been loved by God in the past, we are constantly the recipients of the love of God. Romans talks about the foreknowledge. But the, the thing I want you to see here, the thing that's important in Romans, this is an unbroken chain. Alright? He says, those he foreknew, he also predestined. So everybody he foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. It's unbroken. He doesn't lose any along the way. It's not some he did this and some he did No. All he foreknew. Very important. Unbroken chain, all right? People, this uh, kind of means that God doesn't love everybody. Because everybody's not going to be called. Everybody's not justified. Everybody's not going to be glorified. 
But that's a truth taught in Scripture, believe it or not. Okay? Let me show you a verse. Romans 9.13 As it is written, Jacob I love, Esau I hated. You may say, I don't like that verse. Okay, that's fine. You may say, I never really understood that verse. That's fine. But we should never say once you've read this is that God loves every single individual without exception, without distinction. Because I always say, what about Esau? Well, he was, an, he was an outlier, okay? I remember one day at the car lot, this guy came in, and our salesmen like to stir things up all the time. And he's talking to this guy, and this guy is a preacher, and he knows the Bible. And, and so my salesman says, well, so you know that Bible pretty well, huh? He goes, like the back of my hand. He goes, why do you think God hated Esau? He says, what? The Bible says God hated Esau. He said, the Bible never said that. So much for knowing it by the back here. So the salesman showed him that verse, and boy, that was the end of that conversation. He stormed out, you know. Yeah, you get upset when you see things you don't believe, you know, in the Bible, okay? Nothing can more clearly manifest the strong opposition of the human mind to the doctrine of divine sovereignty than the violence which human ingenuity has employed to twist this expression, Jacob have a love, but Esau have a hate it. God is sovereign in the exercise of His love. For some reason, that's hard for people to accept. God is a sovereign God. He says, I'll show mercy to whom I'll show mercy. I'll harden whom I'll harden. Basically, God can say, I'll do whatever I want. Because He can. He's God. He created you. He can do whatever He wants. And God is sovereign in the exercise of His love. And what I mean by that, God makes choices who to love. He doesn't love everybody. But that's a mantra of today, right? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. I know that when I say God doesn't love everybody, people get upset. Okay? But that's clearly what the Word of God teaches. We already saw He didn't love Esau. That's clear. Now, how will you argue? Will you argue He loves everybody but Esau? You know, I think it's one of the most popular beliefs of our day that God loves everybody. I mean, everybody tells you that. Tracks all over the place saying that. But the idea that God loves everybody is a modern belief. And it's not a biblical one. Tom Constable writes this. Though God loves all people, John 3.16, that's the verse they'll normally quote for that, He does not choose all for salvation. Is that troubling in any way? Here's what it's saying. God loves you, but He's going to damn you for all eternity. Oh boy, what's that love mean then? How is that different than hating? It doesn't make any sense. God loves you. Have, he has to say that because that's the that's the belief of the day. God loves everybody, but He doesn't choose everybody. He, he chooses some of the people He loves. He chooses not to. It just it makes no sense. It really doesn't. Okay. All right, let's look at John 3.16. For God so loved the world. Everybody knows this, right? Look at a sporting event. Someone's got, someone's got the sign up there. Right, John 3.16. So some people are curious. Let's look it up. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And people say, see, it says God loved the world. Yes, it does say that. What does it mean by what it says? Does it mean He loves every single individual without exception, without distinction? Well, here's the thing. Context is king, right? What's going on in John 3? Who is Yeshua speaking to here? John 3. Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a ruler of the Jews, right? 
And the Jews believed that God loved only them. God hated Gentiles. They did, so they figured God must be like us. He hates Gentiles too, right? They loved only them. Nicodemus had the idea that when the Messiah would come, he would come and give the kingdom of God to the Jews and he would submit the Gentiles to judgment. That was their doctrine. God had called the Jews to reach out to the world and they said, no, we don't want the world. We want them to, <laughs> we want them to perish, okay? Their doctrine was that the Jews would be saved, anybody connected to Abraham would be saved, but Gentiles get judged. And this is why the prophet Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh. Okay, God said, go to Nineveh. No, I hate Ninevites. <laughs> I love, his whole thing is God, after God saves the city, what's he do? I knew you were a loving God. I knew you were merciful. That's why I didn't want to come here. Like a little kid throwing a temper tantrum. He hated Gentiles. And he didn't want to see them get saved. He wanted the city destroyed. When Peter went to the home of Cornelius and preached the gospel to the Gentiles, he got in hot water from the big shots in Jerusalem because he went to the Gentiles with the gospel. You can't go in with Gentiles and eat with them, be with them. According to one commentator, no Jewish writer specifically asserted that God loved his world because they didn't believe that. They just didn't. They were special. God told them they were special. He said, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. And known there's the idea of loving. And so they were like, God loves us. He doesn't like anybody else. So what John 3.16 is saying in context is God's love is international in scope. He loves Gentiles as well as Jews. It is not saying He loves every single person without exception, without distinction. It's He loves beyond Jews, people. He loves the Gentile world also. He loves them enough to embrace them and not simply you Jews. Our text says, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. Now, there's a manuscript problem here. Some manuscripts have first fruits. Other manuscripts have from the beginning. The New American Standard has from the beginning. Now, the phrase from the beginning is found in the Greek manuscripts, Aleph, D, K, and L, the Peshuta translations, but manuscripts B, F, G, P, the Vulgate, uh, the Syriac translation have first fruits. And so they argue, which one is right? Well, the phrase from the beginning is not used by Paul elsewhere. So they say, well, that, that can't be right. Paul never uses that elsewhere. Well, A.T. Robertson, a Greek scholar, thinks that is, that is the original wording, from the beginning. All right, And USB 4, which rates manuscripts, gives it a B rating, which means it's almost certainly from the beginning here. And so on the other side, people will say, well, Paul never used the concept of first fruits to illustrate election. So you got these arguments on both sides. I think from the beginning is probably the original, and it parallels what we see in Ephesians 1.4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him love. When did God choose people? Before the foundation of the world. Before the world existed, before you were born, anybody was born, God made choices. <clears throat> How do you know we were going to be here? <clears throat> the Ordo Salutis starts with God loving in eternity past. All right? That's where it all begins. It's all founded in the love of God. Secondly, we have election. 
Or you could call it predestination. And I want to throw giving in here too. Not, I'm not talking about you giving money. Okay, don't. We'll get to that in a second here. <laughs> Our text says, "Brothers beloved." Okay, their love by the Lord because God chose you. Chose is the word hareomai, and it means to pick. It means to take. But the middle voice means to choose. And the form of the verb here is an aorist indicative middle of past action, plus the words from the beginning point to the eternal choice of God. This choice was not on the basis of their love for God or any merit on their part. Because it was just because God's love for them. The middle voice is an intensive middle. He chose for or by himself. God just chose. You think, what, what right does he have to make choices? He's God. That's a right you get when you're God, okay? If you ever get to be a God, then you can do that too, all right? But that ain't going to happen, all right? But that's the whole thing. People have to understand he's God. He created everything. He controls everything. He do what he wants to with his creation. Paul told the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 1.4, For we know, brothers, loved by God, He's chosen you, and He's linking together the love of God and the choice of God in election. From all eternity, God loved this church at Thessalonica, and He chose them from the beginning, from all the sinners in Macedonia. Alright? Now, <clears throat> because people don't like God being sovereign over salvation, they come up with ways to get around this. You know, try and they because listen, people, one of the foundational doctrines of the human heart is free will. We have a free will. We can do whatever we want to do, all right? First of all, free will is it's a will that would be uninfluenced by anything. And how can you have a will uninfluenced by anything when you have so many things that affect every, every decision you make is affected by something? Luther wrote a big, thick book like this called The Bondage of the Will. And he talks about how your will is in bondage to what you think. If you think a certain way, you're not going to go against it. But that's just a, you see that in movies, see it everywhere. Oh, God can't violate our free will. Poor God, I just, he's just up there saying, man, I wish I could do something. But they just got to make their own choices. And these people will think that, <clears throat> you know, well, individuals are elected by God because what God does, he looks into the future and he sees what you're going to do based on your own free will. And based on that, he says, oh, they're going to choose me, I choose them. That's what people argue. So, does that mean that God can't act until we act first? He's waiting for us to do something? He looked down through the years. He saw we're going to believe because of our act of our free will. And so he says, good, you choose me, I'll choose you too. Now, if you really believe that, <laughs> if you really believe that, evidently you think there's a time when God gains knowledge. In other words, he looks down through the years. He didn't know this, but he's learning. He looks down through the years and he says, oh, look, they're going to choose me, so I choose them. Then you have a God who is not omniscient. He's learning. He's gaining knowledge. That's not the God of the Bible. That's not the God of the Bible. God doesn't look and see and then make any decisions. God makes decisions, all right? So we have the love of God. We have election or predestination. Now, Predestination is the same concept of choosing or electing. 
What predestined means in its most elementary form is that our final destination is decided by God. Predestination means to mark out. God marked us out as His. Before you even get there, before you were even born, God marked you out as His. Now, another thing I want to bring up under the second point here that I don't think that many people are familiar with is the idea of giving. And what I mean by that is the Father gave to the Son a gift. You know what that gift was? Us. Us. (laughs) That's a crazy gift, isn't it? God gave the Son a gift for His suffering on the cross, and that gift was the elect. He promised them the elect. See, in the Arminian circles, Christ died on the cross, and He could have died for nothing. Because if nobody decided to choose Him, then the death is wasted. I tried. No one wanted it. In Calvinism, we understand that He died for His elect, and they're sure they're coming. All right, They were a gift given by the Father to the Son. Let me show you this. Just We don't have time to develop it. Let me show you a couple of verses. John 17. This is the high priestly prayer. This is Christ's prayer to the Father. He says, Since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. So notice here it doesn't say that He gives eternal life to all who believe in Him. That'd be true. But here He says He gives eternal life to all you have given Him. So who are these given? Who has the Father given to Yeshua? That's important because the given, all of them, get eternal life. Well, look at what Yeshua said earlier in John, John 6. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. So who is coming to Yeshua? The ones, And here's what we have to understand here. Very important in this text. He says, they'll come to me. That is synonymous with will believe in me. All right? So all that the Father gives me will believe in me. Look at John 6.35. Yeshua said to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So coming to Yeshua, believing in Yeshua, they're synonymous concepts. They're parallel terms. Coming to Christ is the same as believing in Christ and vice versa. This is important in understanding this text, because all that the Father gives me will believe in me. Well, since coming to Christ and believing in Christ are synonymous, who believes in Yeshua? All that the Father gives him. So the ability to believe on Yeshua requires divine enablement. It's only those who the Father enables to believe that can come to Yeshua in faith. These are all the people the Father gives to the Son as a gift. Yeshua viewed the ultimate cause of faith as God's electing grace and not man's choice. All right, so I just think that the idea of giving goes under that second point there. So, so far we've got eternal love of God. He chooses, and please understand, both of these happen before time, in eternity past. Don't go thinking about that too hard, because it's hard to think of no beginning. Okay, just, it's just, I can't go back that far, okay? But in eternity past, sometime before He created the world, God loved and He chose. Then in time, we were born into the world. And when we were born, we were born into a state of death. All right, this is important. This is how we were born, into a state of death. All right? We weren't born saved. 
We weren't born believing. We were born dead. Separated from God. Now, this is not in a list in our text in Thessalonians or in Romans 8. But like I said, these are not exhaustive lists. And I add this to the list because I think it's important for us to understand that even though God loved us from eternity past and chose us to be His own, in time, you and I were born into this world, and when we were born, we were born in a state of death, separated from God. All right? Born under the wrath of God. All men are born separated from God. Men are born spiritually dead. Every unbeliever is in a state of death. Look at Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's referring to Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all because all have sinned. The death, Adam's death, which was a spiritual death, a separation from God, spread to all men. Adam was the federal head of the human race. When he sinned, we sinned. He represented mankind. His choice affected all of us. His sin is imputed to us. People say, I don't like that. I didn't ask him to be my representative. That's okay, because Christ is also our representative. And through him, we're imputed righteousness, okay? Now, in historic theology, man's condition is sin is called total depravity. This doesn't mean that every human being is as bad as they could possibly be. That would be utter depravity. All right, the phrase total depravity is attempting to communicate that sin affects every aspect of man's being. Sin dominates every aspect of a person's thoughts, actions, attitudes, and desires. Look at what Paul said to the Ephesians. Now, he's writing to the Ephesians who are believers. He's writing to the believers in Ephesus, and he said, You were dead in trespasses and sins. You were dead. That's the fallen state of man. They were dead in sin. And because they're dead in sin, they don't have no spiritual life. It's important to take note that Paul here doesn't say, you are really sick. You're dead. You, you understand the difference between dead and sick, right? I hope you do, because most people say, well, man is just really sick, and God offers the medicine, and man has to choose it, and all this other nonsense, okay? Well, after stating that man is spiritually dead and exhibits any lack of spiritual life at all, he says in verses 4 and 5 of Ephesians here, he says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, again, he's writing to believers, he loves the believers, when we were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. So Scripture declares we're dead in sin. God acts just to bring about a spiritual resurrection. Making us alive in Christ, this represents the next step in the Ordo Salutis, which is calling or regeneration. All right? We're dead, and God calls us to life. 2 Thessalonians 2.14 To this He called you through the Gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Yeshua the Christ. The calling is what theologians call the effectual, the efficacious, effectual calling. God is calling dead men to life. This is regeneration. This is a spiritual resurrection. You're dead, and God gives you life. Because fallen man in his natural state, he lacks all power to commune with God. That's why the Bible says he's not seeking God. Because he doesn't care about God. He's dead. Spiritually dead. And apart from God giving man life, he can't understand anything. 
How much conviction do you think a dead man feels? <laughs> this little un understood truth is also taught in John 12. John said, though he had done so many signs before them, he's talking to the Jews there, Christ is there and he's doing all these things, he's raising the dead, he's healing the sick, he's doing all this stuff. And they, listen, they're looking for a Messiah who would do all this stuff. <laughs> and then Christ comes along and does all this stuff, and they're like, nah, we don't want you. They still did not believe in him. All he did, and they didn't believe. All right? So the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah, might, the, here's the reason they didn't believe, because it's a fulfillment of prophecy. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom of the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. Because Isaiah said, these Jews didn't believe because they couldn't believe because they were dead. And until God gave them life, they would never see it. Paul teaches the same thing in 1 Corinthians 2.14. 2.14 says the natural man. That's the Greek word sukakos. This word is only used one other time in Scripture, and it's in Jude. And Jude translates it void of the Spirit. So the natural man is a man without the Spirit of God. He doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God. You ever shared the gospel with somebody and they're like, that's stupid, who cares? Why? Because the natural man can't accept it. He just can't, all right? It says they're folly to him. He hears it, that's ridiculous. Christ dying to save, that's dumb. He's not able to understand them. He, he can't do it because they're spiritually discerned. It's like people, in this room, there's radio waves all over. If you've got a receiver, you can pick it up. If you don't have a receiver, you're clueless, okay? And, and apart from the Spirit of God, they have no receiver. They're dead. They can't understand the things of God. And that's why when you try to explain the things of God to people, they don't get it, because they're natural. Until God does something in their life. He doesn't accept the things of God, which is the gospel. <clears throat> So this is God's effectual calling. It's regeneration. It's absolutely necessary because apart from it, we're never going to understand what's going on because we're dead and we're not hearing, we're not seeing, we're not thinking. John 3.3, 3, <clears throat> Yeshua would answer him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now by see here, it's the idea of perceiving understanding. Okay, you're not going to understand the kingdom of God. Again, we're back in the third chapter of John, very familiar chapter, and he's, you know, everybody understands this idea of born again. We understand the term, what does it mean? Okay? We know that people must be born again. There's a lot of different options to what people come up with, what, the idea of what this actually means. The term born again is synonymous with effectual calling. It's synonymous with regeneration. Being born again is the same thing as receiving a new heart, Ezekiel 36, 26. Or what Ephesians 2 called being made alive. 1 Peter calls it being called out of darkness into his marvelous light. All these terms are what theologians call regeneration. Hodge says this, Regeneration is the instantaneous change from spiritual death to spiritual life. Regeneration, therefore, is a spiritual resurrection, the beginning of a new life. It's a change. God performs it. You're dead, God says, let me give this man life. Thiessen, the, the theologian, said regeneration may be defined as the communication of divine life to the soul, as the impartation of a new nature or heart and the production of a new creation. So in the Ordo Salutis, we are physically born, spiritually dead. 
born in a state of death, then at some point in our life, God called us. Nobody was born saved, okay? At some point in your life, God calls you. This is the effectual call. It's a call from death to life. The effectual call of regeneration is by grace without means. It's a supernatural act of God. God gives a person a new heart, and he is a spiritually alive. And here's what we have to understand. Man is passive in the new birth. He does no more to produce a new birth than Lazarus did to produce his resurrection. Now you may be thinking, it didn't happen that way with me. I believed, and then I received new life. Well, you're looking at it from your experience and not from the standard of God's Word, but before you ever could believe, you had to be made alive. Okay? This calling of God, this spiritual birth, is affected without means. That's really important, okay? Because most people think that the means of regeneration is what? The Word of God or faith. Okay, if we believe, we get life. But regeneration is a direct act of God upon the spirit of a man. Truth can't be the means of regeneration because before a man is regenerated, he's blind and he can't see. He's deaf. He can't hear. He's dead and he can't respond. If the Word of God was the means of regeneration, then we would be justified as believers to go out and kidnap people and bring them in here and blast the Word of God at them until they got saved. Once they got saved, they'd understand why we kidnapped them, right? And so we'd be okay. And if they wouldn't accept, we'd just keep blasting until they got right, right? I mean, that's not how it works, people, okay? God has to do His thing first. Truth cannot be the means of the new birth because it, the natural man can't receive the things of the Spirit of God. We saw that, 1 Corinthians 2.14. The increase of light won't enable a blind man to see. The disease of the eye must first be cured. So a man has to be regenerated by the Spirit before he can receive the truth. It's solely a work of the Spirit. That's why we pray for the lost. So God will do something. Because when God calls, we come. Here's one thing you, we have to understand. People are confused on this too. The call of God is irresistible. Okay? God calls you, guess what? You're coming. All right? It's like when you're a kid and mama calls, you best get your butt moving, okay? Or you're going to be in trouble. All right, look at John 6, 44. And those of you that hold the Arminian view, explain this verse to me, please. Okay? Yeshua said, no one can come to me. Pretty direct statement, right? Nobody. All you people, again, talking to these Jews, you can't come to me. And they're like, what do you mean? Why can't we? Unless, oh, Okay, what's the exception? How do, how do we get around this? How, how do we come to Him? The Father who sent me draws Him. That's the only way you come. We, again, no one comes unless God draws that person, gives them spiritual life. Now here's the cool thing about this verse, okay? The word draw there, right? We've gone over this. You know, what's the Greek word there? How cool. Thank you, class. Oh, man, I'm, I'm excited. Y'all are remembering some things, okay? How cool. Halkuo means, it's only used like, I think, seven or eight times in the New Testament. So look every one of them up. It's used of drawing, drawing the sword out of the... Oh, people say that Halkuo means to woo. I don't even know what woo means. Okay? Woo-hoo! I don't, I don't... God woos people, they say. And I'm like, explain that. Is that a different generation term or what is that? 
How do you woo somebody? Woo, woo, woo. I, I don't. I can't even. Yes, yeah, before my time. That's believe it or not. <laughs> How cool is a strong word? It's used of Peter drawing his sword. Peter didn't say, sword, please come out. I would really like you to come out. No, he grabbed it and drew it. And here's what hell cool means. To drag by irresistible superiority. Oh, man, people hate that, you know. And one lady I was talking to, and she says, well, doesn't Calvinism mean that God drags people into the kingdom of God? Like, no, not really, because what he does is he gives you a new heart, and then you're excited to come in. Okay? But it's an irresistible draw. Okay? And listen, again, we're dealing with God. And God wants something done. He gets it done. Look up every use of Helkuo and then tell me what that means. Nobody comes. None. In other words, what we learned already, no one can believe in me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So once God gives new life, then you can believe. Strong says Helkuo means to drag. Kittle says, that's not wooing. Dragging and wooing, I don't think are the same. Kittle says it means to compel by irresistible superiority. Too many think salvation begins with man's quest for God. And that's why today we have what's called seeker-sensitive churches. They're geared up for those people looking for God. It's a false premise because the Bible says nobody seeks after God. They don't care about God until God does something first. They have no conception of a sovereign God giving life to a spiritually dead soul. In a word, they exhibit little or no grasp of biblical order of salvation, the ordo salutis. The emphasis of Scripture is not on what man does to appropriate the grace of God, but what on God does in applying that. All right, so we got love by God, eternity past, election, eternity past. At, point, at a point in time, we're born into this world. Then at a point in time, God calls us who are dead to life. He gives us life. What's next? After God gives us life, what's the next thing that happens? What? No, not glory, not yet. You're getting ahead of us. Okay, justification. We're still getting ahead of ourselves. Something has to happen. Thank you. Belief, okay, faith. We have life, now we're alive. And so, because we're alive, we just get in? No. No, we have to believe. That's our part. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 God says, through sanctification of the Spirit and belief in the truth. Truth here is parallel to the Gospel in verse 14. People, we have to have faith. We must believe the Gospel. Faith is understanding. This is important because you ask people what faith is and they're like, oh. You get all kinds of different answers. Faith is understanding and assent to the propositions of the Gospel. In other words, there's certain propositions. Christ says this, you have to believe that. First you have to understand it, and then you have to believe it. That's what faith is. I believe what God says. I tell you the check is in the mail. You either believe me or you don't. Don't. <laughs> don't. No, it's not. But whether you believe me or not depends on what you view of my character. And if you think I'm a man of character, and then you say, you said it's there. I don't see it. I don't have any indication it's in the mail, but you said it, so I'm believing. That's what faith is about. You believe what God said. And here, people, again, you can't do that unless you've been given life. All right? They can't believe what they don't know. Faith is belief or trust in Christ and Christ alone for our salvation. 
It's a response to God giving life. Regeneration. It's not the cause of it. And that's where the church today has this backwards. Regeneration, having life, precedes faith. Most people think you believe because you believe God gives you life. It's backwards. How do you believe if you're dead? Okay? In Acts 16, 14, it says, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. That means she was a proselyte. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Paul's preaching the gospel, and the Lord opens Lydia's heart, so she's like, can believe the gospel. This is the effectual calling regeneration. She responded in faith. She couldn't have responded if she's dead. It's in the end of, end of Acts 13. It says, as many as were called to eternal life believed. The only people who believe are the ones that are called. So based on the order of salutus, faith is the evidence, and this is what's important. Because people say, well, how do you know they're a Christian? Oh, they don't smoke or they do, the, you know. We got all these silly little things we think of that we know they're definitely a Christian. You know, I could take a Mormon and stick him in your face and say, don't tell you anything what he believes. And you say, oh, this guy's definitely a Christian. He won't even drink coffee. Like that's spiritual or something, I guess, you know. But it, it, no, the evidence of regeneration is faith. It's faith. That's the evidence. Let me show you that. 1 John 5.1. John said, Everyone who believes that Yeshua is the Christ has been born of God. Now, John uses the present tense here, everyone who believes, which gives the meaning that everyone who is presently believing in Yeshua, then he says this, has been born of God. That's the perfect tense, which generally refers to an event in past time, it indicates results which persist into the present time. So we have a present tense, we have a perfect tense, and the perfect tense would indicate that the event that occurred previous to the other. This tense makes it clear that the divine beginning is the antecedent, to the, not the consequent of believing. Everybody who believes, you believe? Yes, I believe. Then you have been born of God, because you can't believe if you haven't been born. You're dead. Faith, people is the evidence of new life. Because, again, you can't believe without having that new life. Alright? So we got, in eternity past, we're loved, we're chosen, we're born into the world in a state of death. God calls us, gives us life, regeneration, it's a spiritual resurrection. Then, based on that, we hear the gospel and we believe. Wow, that's cool. How many of you have heard the gospel at one time, it just, pfft, you didn't care. Blew it off. And then later, you hear the gospel, and what in the world? All of a sudden, well, if you're alive, guess what? It makes a whole lot more exciting, doesn't it? And I, it just, when I first became a Christian, I was working at a foundry. Someone gave me the Chick publication track, Big Daddy. Okay? I thought it was a comic book, so I stopped to read it. I stopped my work, and I read it, and I was like, I got under such conviction. I didn't know what to do. I went back to the guy who gave it to me. And I started talking. What's this about? And, you know, so he started sharing with me. And I was like so excited. I was like, I trusted Christ. I believe what he was telling me. I went out to, the, I said, where'd you get that? He told me. I went out to Christian bookstore. I bought a ton of tracks. I mean, I bought almost everything they had on the rack. Because every Friday, we had a kegger. Well, there was 10 of us guys who hung out together in high school. And every Friday, we had a kegger. We rotated houses. This was my house. So I got the keg. And I got all the tracks. I'm so excited. The party starts and everybody's drinking and I'm going around handing out these tracks. I got this grinned 
ear to ear grin on my face because this is going to be so cool. And I'm handing them out, and then people are just throwing them on the ground, throwing them on the ground. I'm like, wait, did you read that? Yeah, I read it. You don't get what it's saying? And there, it was just like nobody. It was like nothing. And I was like, what happened? I read that, and I just I blew up. I got so excited, I couldn't stand it. They're like nothing. My grandma used to laugh. She goes, ah, you're out there with all these people drinking, and you're handing out tracts, preaching to all these people. I'm like, I was, so, I was so disappointed by the end of that night. I was like, what? what's wrong here? Why don't they see what I see? Well, if they don't have life, they don't see it. And I don't think any of those guys have ever seen it to this day. So what was it that the Thessalonians were chosen for? He says salvation or justification. So they believed and then they were saved. So that's the order here. We are loved in the past. We are chosen. We're born in a state of death. God gives us new life. Because of that life, we believe, and because we believe, we receive salvation or justification. What were they? That's what they were chosen for. And look at it, he says, because God chose you from the beginning to be saved. They were chosen for salvation. Now, the words for salvation here express the purpose or goal. The purpose of God's election was that they might be saved. Salvation stands in contrast to the horrible condemnation of the previous verses in 10 and 12. They were chosen for damnation. You are chosen for salvation. He says they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Those are the unbelievers. As we talked about last week, listen, you have to have faith in order to be saved. You're not born into it. You don't somehow wake up into it. You have to understand. You have to hear the gospel. You have to believe the gospel. That is important. Look at Acts 16.31. He brought them out. The Philippian jailer. Okay, Paul's whip. Paul and Silas, they get beat. They stuck in the jail. God crazed an earthquake. All the jail doors open. And he brought them out. And, and so the jailer's just freaking out. He's going to kill himself. Now, Paul's in the inner prison. The jailer's not standing down there in the inner prison. There's no lights in there. But he's about to kill himself. How does Paul know that? Paul said, hey, don't do anything. We're all here. The guy's like freaking out like, what's going on here? And so the guy comes out and he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And the the response was, believe in the Lord Yeshua and you will be saved. He didn't say, don't worry, everybody's saved. No, it's not universalism. Everybody's not saved. We have to believe in Christ. Then we're saved. Then we're justified. Now, last week, I talked about Cindy Coates. I played some clips, and I said she's a universalist, all right? She got a hold of me this week, okay? Um, <clears throat> and, and we talked, and she said she's not a universalist, okay? She also, I mean, I, I pressed her on this. You know, she's not a universalist. She says, I don't believe everybody's going to heaven. She says, I'm an annihilationist. And I'm like, okay, then why are you teaching universalist doctrine? And she said, I'm not. And I pressed her, and she just doubled down on the fact that all are saved at the cross. Everybody, the whole world was saved at the cross. 2,000 years ago, everybody was saved. So I said, that's universalism. No, it's not. And I'm like, okay, well. So, bottom line, she says she's not a universalist. What if I told you I'm not a Calvinist? 
Anybody believe? <laughs> you don't believe me if I were to say that? What, why would you not believe me? Listen, Calvin taught in the, in the Institutes of Christian Religion, which is one of the greatest things ever written. Calvin wrote about this thing called temporary faith. I think, for a, I think he fell and hit his head. I think he, you know, something happened, but he, it was, a, it was a, a, bleep, a bleep there that shouldn't have been. Temporary faith, you know. How do you have temporary faith, you know? So he messed up. So I don't agree with that. So I could say I'm not a Calvinist. But most of the stuff he wrote, I do believe in, okay? So that's what I'm saying. She is teaching a doctrine of universalism, all right? She's teaching all are saved and all were not saved. Nobody gets saved until they believe. That's very important. Only those who believe the gospel are saved. The scriptures are clear that faith in Yeshua the Christ is the instrumental precondition of justification. Now, okay, so I guess I was wrong because I said she's a universalist. What I should have said, she teaches universalism. Okay? Because she says she's not. And I, okay, that's, that's, she's telling me she's not one. But again, she is teaching, and I don't know if there's just confusion there. I don't understand it, but that's how it is. Look at Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. That's, where, that's how justification happens. It's through faith. And the logical sequence is faith precedes justification. Justification, salvation, same thing. Many scriptures state that faith is the response of the heart and mind to the divine call of the believer. Therefore, faith should be positioned in the broad outline between calling and justification. Therefore, in the application of salvation, this gives us the logical sequence of foreknowledge, election, state of death, calling, faith, then justification. Now, under number six, with salvation or justification, I want to add one, adoption. Okay, adoption. The place of adoption, I think, in the Ordo Salutis should go in there with number six. And I think we can understand this by looking at John 1, 12 and 13. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name. There again, these people, they receive Christ. They believe him. That's so stressed through scripture, okay? That's, the, that's our response, people, faith. He gave, the ones who believe, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born, not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but by God. So he's again stressing, they're born of God, all right? So John states that as many as received him, they're given the right to become children of God. The Greek word translated right here is the meaning of, it's the legal word authority. It's the referring to the legal act of God's grace in adoption. Therefore, John is teaching that faith is the necessary logical precondition of God adopting us into his family as his children. And since being adopted into God's family would presuppose that a person's sins are forgiven, and he's accepted by God as righteous, it's logical to assume that adoption follows salvation. Now, the New Testament also speaks about positional sanctification as synonymous with salvation. He says they are, God chose them from the beginning to be saved through sanctification of the Spirit. Sanctification, hagiosmos is the word here from hagiazo, which means to set apart, to consecrate. This carries the idea of God setting us apart for Himself. And that happens, okay, at salvation. This is positional sanctification. You're set apart to be God's. All right. So we're going to have one more because you've got to have seven, right, to be perfect. All right. The perfect number. 
God, God loves us in eternity past. He chose us in time because we were given to Him by the Father. We were born into this life in a state of death. God called us. He gave us life. We responded in faith. God gives salvation or justification. He adopts us into His family. What's the last one, Stan? Uh, (laughs) Glorification. Okay, glorification. That's the final one. Look at 2 Thessalonians 2.14. To this He called you through His Gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Yeshua the Christ. The purpose of God's calling is that the Thessalonians would share in the glory of Christ. This is the same glory that John wrote about in 1 John 3.2. Beloved, we're God's children now. And what we will, will be has not yet appeared But we know that when He appears, we'll be like Him because we'll see Him as He is. Now, the word appears here is phanerao. It refers to the return of Christ. From the first century reader's perspective, they were looking forward to the coming. We could translate it, but as for the second coming. When the second coming happens, we'll be like Him. Now, most futurists are saying this is going to happen in the future. John was telling his readers it was going to happen very soon. So when the second coming happened, John said, we'll be like him. And the we is John's first century readers here, the saints. He tells them that when the second coming happens, they will be like Christ. John said, we'll be like him. Now, and people, what does this mean? You know, people have all kinds of ideas what this means. But let's look at the Greek here. The Greek word here for like is homoios. And home oios means similar. Okay, in other words, you're going to be exactly like God. Similar in appearance or character. Home oios means not exactly the same. So we are now like Christ in the fact that we share His righteousness. And that's what he's talking about here. You're going to share the very nature of God, the righteousness of God, when He comes back. Colossians 3, 4 says, When Christ who is your life appears, you will also appear with Him in glory. Believers, Christ has appeared. And believers have been glorified. Glorification, most people attach glorification to being somewhere else. Okay, being in heaven, then you're glorified. Glorification is nothing more than dwelling in God's presence. Are we in His presence now? He's come. He lives with us. We dwell with Him. Believers, Christ is our life. He is in the presence of God. Therefore, we are in the presence of God. We are in glory. He closes with this, our Lord Yeshua the Christ. Are you, are you aware that the fact when the New Testament writers use the word Lord, they're taking that from the Tanakh where it's used as Lord, and Lord is used for Yahweh. So basically he's saying Yahweh Yeshua the Christ. Yahweh means He is. He exists. He causes to exist. And when the New Testament authors use this term for Yeshua, they're trying to identify Him with Yahweh. Okay? The glory of Yahweh, Yeshua, the Christ. He's God in the flesh. All right. So this is the order Ordo Salutis. This is what the plan of this is the order of the things of salvation. We don't always see these. The Bible tells us this is the order, which starts with the love of God, it ends with being in the presence of God. So what are the practical applications of understanding this? 
Well, first of all, a, a person's belief about salvation have practical effects on all Christian activity. And when you understand that salvation is God's work, you won't be so caught up in methods and programs for witnessing. How many of you ever went to a, a evangelism class where you taught how to get people to heaven? Okay? All right? They tell you things like brush your teeth, you know, do all these things. And I'm like, you know, Jonah didn't follow any of these principles. He just went in there and said, I hate you Ninevites. I hope you all go to hell. And God saved the whole country. I'm like, so much for evangelism. So much for this little precious order we have to follow. And people, I grew up under the guilt as a Christian of you better witness to somebody because if you don't, they'll go to hell, but their blood is on your hands. Okay? Now, how many of you ever heard, grew up that way? Your, their blood, your fault they've gone to hell. Okay? That's a horrible thing to feel. I remember one time early in our marriage, some, we had a repairman come to work on our refrigerator and I'm trying to get it in, and I couldn't get in to talk to this guy. And he left the house, and I'm like, oh, I'm in trouble. His blood is on my hands. That's a horrible thing. Listen, salvation is of the Lord. All right, if you try to talk to somebody and they're not interested, I don't keep pushing it. I'm trying to pour water down a clogged drain. You know, they have to be interested, you know, because if they're not interested, you're not going anywhere. And, and, so, and I... I guess it's not good to dump the whole load on them either. You know, I mean, they're just asking questions. Answer their question. They'll come back with another one if you stop there. But if you just blast them, they're like, oh, I ain't never talking to that guy again. Okay, well, too much. I got, I got sermonized, you know. So, you know, we don't need to worry about these things. God is in charge. He's going to save who he's going to save. But he uses us, and it's so exciting. When you share the gospel with somebody, and you see them get it, and they're excited, and they come to life, I always walk away from that situation feeling so excited, but I'm like, why am I so excited? I don't get a commission. <laughs> you know, but you know, just the joy that they've understood, they've come into the kingdom of God, it's, it's really exciting. Only the Holy Spirit creates new life. We can be free from the bondage that we were put under so often of doing things, all right? And when we know the truth about the biblical order of salvation... We're not going to be led astray by false teaching like universalism. Because, okay, we know the Bible says this. This has to happen. This has, no, God doesn't love everybody. He's not going to save everybody. We understand that faith precedes salvation. A person has to believe the gospel. That's the only way they can be saved. We also understand that God does not love or save everybody. He didn't die for everybody, so everybody will not be saved. Now that's, I know, that's so hard for people to grasp, and I'm sorry, but it's what the Bible teaches, okay? An understanding of the Ordo Salutis should give cause to, a, I think, just a profound sense of gratitude, okay? It's no longer about you. It's not that you did the right thing. You're smart enough. We didn't deserve to be justified. We deserve wrath. But God in His love reaches out and gives us life. And the gospel is this, people. God saves sinners. That's the gospel. It's God who does it. All of it, beginning to end. He saves them. People who are not worthy of it. God saves sinners. That's what the gospel is all about. And apart from God working, giving spiritual life, nobody's ever going to seek Him. Okay, the Bible tells us that. Romans chapter 3. 
No one seeks after God. They, they don't want God. They don't care about God. And so if you see someone, all of a sudden they've all got all this interest in God, you're like, hey, let me share the gospel with you because I think something's going on in your life, all right? A true understanding of the Ordo Salutis, I think, will humble us as nothing else can and bring the heart in a lowly submission and profound gratitude before God. Our salvation is because of God. Our position is because of God. It's not on us. And when we make it about us, we're taking the glory. You know, 1 Corinthians, he talks about, you know, it's God who brings salvation, so no man will glory in his presence. We've got nothing to brag about, you know. And don't, you know, you can get rid of your little notches on your gospel gun belt because you're not winning these people, okay? God's winning them. He uses us because they have to hear the gospel, okay? They have to hear the gospel. But let me tell you, God will get it to them. For, with me, it was a track. I read it, okay? That was, that was all I needed, you know? And I'd been to church my whole life, just about, Presbyterian church. My parents dragged me there. I hated it, you know? I guess what? After I got saved, I wanted to go to church. My parents thought, what the heck happened to you, you know? Yeah, I was dragged there, you know? And listen, it was a Presbyterian church that wasn't even preaching the gospel, and it didn't take me long to figure out, this is not what it should be, okay? Because I was alive, spiritually. I was reading my Bible, I'm growing, I'm learning. And I remember... I found a Bible of my mom's, and uh, I was looking through it, and her testimony was written in the Bible, got saved at church camp, da-da-da-da-da, and I went to her, I was heartbroken, I went to her with tears, I said, why did you never tell me this? I was mad, I was hurt, and she kind of backed, she goes, I, 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 we, we used to, I'm like, no mom, why didn't you tell me this? I was wrong, you know, but I, would, I was just mad, because I was like, you knew this and you didn't tell me? This is something you don't not tell people. This is something you shout from the rooftop, okay? This is exciting news. It's all about God, though. Believe me. I mean, it's all about God. I was not looking for God. I could care less about God. I just, I knew he was, I guess I believed in him, the idea of him anyway. But I didn't care. I was doing my own thing. And God interrupted my life and brought me to salvation and just switched everything around on me. I'm like, okay. And I learned early that you better not argue or fight him because he can play pretty rough, okay? And when I, when I kept battling him, I ended up in the hospital paralyzed from the neck down. And I said, okay, if you want to play this way, I'll do what you want me to do, okay? It's just, there's no sense in fighting that, okay? I mean, it was clear. Once I got to that hospital, I'm laying there, and I'm like, oh, I know what's going on. I knew it. I knew it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace in our lives. Lord, why you love this, I can't understand. I just thank you for it, Lord. It's an incredible story. You're loving people, sending your son to die on their behalf, righting the wrong through your own price. Thank you, Father. I pray that we would be so excited about the truth of the gospel that we would share it with others and that we would live in a way that brings glory to you because of what you've done in our lives. Thank you, Father, for your grace to us. Amen. Okay, questions? Yes? It was pointed out in the chat room that you gave us all the points, but we didn't get a few poems. So we're <laughs> <laughs> the the I did give a poem, didn't I? What was that one thing I said in there? <laughs> Sorry, no poems today.
Seven points. Now, that's a perfect... If you're going to give points, seven is the number of perfection in totality. So let's use seven points, okay? Four and a half points. And make all the sub points you want so you can stick with seven. <laughs> Okay, yeah, that's a good question, Shelley. Thank you. She asked, can we define Arminianism? Arminianism, basically the, the Christian community is divided into Calvinist Arminius, all right? Calvin believes that the gospel is all of God. God saves sinners. That's the whole idea we talked about today. The Arminian would be more the idea that, you know, and they, this happened, you know, Joseph Arminius put out his five points of Arminianism, and Calvin res responded with the five points of Calvinism. And Arminian basically believes that well, man has to reach out to God in faith. And when he does that, God will save him. So it's up to man. The burden is on man. you got to do this. you got to see that you need him. You reach out. Then, again, Calvinism is the opposite. God gives life. And, you know. So, again, I, I was Arminian for the first five years of my Christian life. I thought, yeah, this is the way to go. It's all up to me. And... And the biggest struggling point with coming to Calvinism was, what about my kids? I mean, if God chooses and they don't choose, and then I start thinking about that, and I thought, well, I think I'd rather trust God to choose than them to choose, you know? So I'm like, okay, I'll let, I'll let you have it, God. You do what you're going to do. Right, thank you, Ron. Good point. Yes, that's a good, that's a good point. Because you got it, you can lose it. Okay, and that's a scary thing, and it depends on again. There's all kinds of on this spectrum. There's a lot. You know, some people think if you sin, boom, you're done, you lost it. Other people think you have to denounce it to get you know. But you can lose it, so you don't really have eternal life if you can lose it. Okay, so that and Calvinists believe no, you're secure. God did this. It's for eternity. You don't get lost. Doesn't matter what. You are His child. So those, those would be definitely the big difference. You participate in getting it. You can lose it. Calvinism, it's all about God. He saves you. He keeps you. He brings you to glory. And that's why the, the unbroken chain in Romans 8 there, everybody he loved, he glorified. There's no missing along the way. There's no like, oh, he didn't want to do this. He left. No, it's not in there. Okay? Anybody else? It's from Norm. He says, Hi, David. So very important for us to understand everyone wants God to be sovereign except in His throne. <laughs> there is no such thing as free will. A free will would choose nothing. It doesn't come to a fork in the road and stop since there's nothing to influence it. Thanks so much for the truth. Yeah, that, I, that again, and if, you, if you were to study Luther's word, uh, the book that he wrote, The Bondage of the Will, I think it would help you understand that free will is just a misnomer. Because you're in, influenced by all kinds of things. You know, as you come into this world, you know, life influences you, makes you think a certain direction, you believe a certain thing. So your will is not free to choose A or B. There's influences in your thinking that push you one way or another. Okay? And that's really important for us to understand because this idea of free will, I just can choose whatever I want. Gary? And like we saw in Proverbs, even if you do choose whatever you want, God's still sovereignly going to direct your path to accomplish His will. I'm sorry, say that again. <laughs> I, I can't yeah. do two things at once. One and done. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I read in Proverbs, 
we're free to choose. Whatever we choose, God still is going to direct our path to accomplish it. Man plans his way, God directs his steps. <laughs> Which means you should plan your way. That's how I live my life. I'm like, Lord, I'm charging ahead. Well, you don't want me, shut the door. And when I hit it, boom, I turn and keep running. All right? You don't sit still and pray, God, tell me what to do. Do something. Okay? He'll direct you. <laughs> I love this. I don't know who this is from, but they start out by saying, I'm not a universalist. <laughs> but, believe in the Lord, you the Christ, and you'll be saved, and your household. Isn't there a hint of universalism in, and your household? No. Not at all. Because it doesn't mean everybody's going to be saved. All right? He's just saying, you know, if you believe this, your household's going to follow along when they see the truth of this. It doesn't mean everybody in that household is going to be saved. That's not the truth there either. And the idea of universalism is God chose everybody, God's saving everybody. Okay? We know certain people are damned. We know that. It teaches that. We just read that in Thessalonians. God he gave them a strong delusion so they believe a lie so he could condemn them. Everybody doesn't. I, I know this is hard for people because we're like, it doesn't seem nice. You got to start at the beginning, though. Everybody deserves judgment. Everybody. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Okay, so nobody deserves anything. So out of the nobody that deserves anything, God chooses to save some. Is that wrong? Well, He should give everybody. Do you have? If you give somebody a dollar, does that mean you have to give everybody a dollar? Well, don't you have a choice to do what you want? In that verse, it just dawned me that you and your house will be saved. Could there in some way have some, uh, the fact of the timing, and could it be more of a salvation from what was coming? If they accept and they believe what's being said, they would be avoiding the wrath to come, the destruction, salvation. Okay, Jeff brings out a good point. This is a point that a lot of people don't seem to understand. Salvation, if you go back to the Tanakh, when that word salvation, soteria, is used, it often refers to deliverance from physical something. Alright, Paul told them, unless you remain in the ship, you cannot be saved. Now there's probably, there's got to be some group out there that says, we've got to stay on ships to be saved. You know, and I, I, I mean, somebody has to have twisted I haven't heard of them there yet. But what's he talking about? Are they going to go to heaven if they stay on the ship? No, saved from the judgment of drowning is what he's talking about there. So Jeff's point is, you and your house will be saved. He might be talking about being saved from the judgment that was coming on Jerusalem. And we have to be careful just because it's saved. Because I think for us Americans, we see the word saved and right away, eternal life. It's not always used that way. That's what trips people up in James. Okay? Because James uses it in a different sense than Paul does. And that's what gets people. If you don't understand that concept of soteria being, you know, deliverance from physical judgment or delivered from the wrath of God. And, and sometimes it's easy to understand. Sometimes not. Uh, Dave, Ann Gilman here, she said, this is one of the most important messages you have preached. I understand how grateful I am. I understand how grateful I am. Thank you, Abba, for choosing me. Amen, amen. Thank you, uh, and I appreciate that. Um, I think it's important, again, because I think it's biblical, all right? Thank you, David. Great lesson, which is always needed. I hope you and the rest of the family have a blessed day. Thank you. Uh, I'm not sure who that's from, but I appreciate it. Um, I'm also excited about learning and reading others who say they're Christians who don't seem to care. Why? What? I'm so excited about learning and reading. Others who say they're Christians don't seem to care. Oh, I get that, yeah. I don't know, you know, and I wish I could. People are different. 
Okay? One of our biggest faults, I think, is that we expect everybody to be like us. Because we're, we're right. We're perfect, right? And so if you're not like us, then something's wrong with you. Okay? And I, I struggle with that because it's easy to... I love to study. I love to dig. I love to question everything. You know? And so everybody should be that way. But they're not. Okay? And so God taught me that lesson through my wife. Okay? So I'm like, she's not a studier. She's not a dick. She reads her Bible every day. But then she does something really weird. She lives it out. And I'm like, I look at her and I'm like, I study eight hours every day. You read your Bible in the morning and then you live the Christian life and I'm learning from you, watching you. And people are different, okay? And so she doesn't really care about all the ins and outs of theology. She just cares about people and how do we minister to them through the gospel? How do we love people? So people are different. And God taught me that. And so, you know, we can't, you know, and one of our readers wrote me and said, you know, you challenge everybody to be Bereans, but everybody's not going to be a Berean. I agree. Okay, she, my wife is correcting me. She cares about theology. She's just not a, she's not going to dig and pull out, get into papers and read, you know, the old books and theology. She just, you know, again, and I, to, and it, it still blows my mind because it seems to me it's intuitive to her. She just, like, a lot of times I'm like, I wouldn't go that way, but that's the right way. <laughs> you know how frustrating that is? <laughs> I, I mean, I just, I, I watch her and I'm learning. You know, and it's it's the grace of God, you know. But I mean, and for someone as pig-headed as me, he had to do something like that. Put someone in my life to show me this is how it works, okay? And so, so we're different. So everybody's not diving down, digging. Now, the people who are, you know, Bob and Mike and Jeff and I, we get along and we're like, yeah, this is the way to do it, you know? And we're studying and we're arguing and going back and forth with this stuff. And I'm like, this is cool. This is what it's about, but everybody's not there. But if they're listening here, they're... They're far above most Christians who want three points in a poem, okay? Because we're not given that. And I think that, and I've met a lot of people in, the, in our community who, they're not really what you'd call a studier or digger, but they're right along with us. They're like, yes. They're yes. And, you know, I tell people, don't believe me, check it out for yourself. And this man who wrote me said, a lot of people don't have the ability to even do that. They wouldn't know how to check it out. Well, I'm just... There's plenty here who do, and so you check it out. Keep me accountable, okay? Gary? Um, I was the radio the other day talking on BBN for a minute, and, but the man made a uh, profound comment that we will, theologians, Bible scholars, will go to war over doctrine and ignore the gospel. It takes us back seat. Now. Yeah, we can get so sidetracked and so bent on trying to prove we're right that you know we we violate the law of love and you know yeah. stomp all over people and that's yeah there's <coughs> uh, someone asked could those first fruit verses be applying to the transition period and not to us today yeah there's people who question that but here's uh jim here's here's my answer to that jim i mean did man's nature change after 70 A.D.? So after 70 A.D., we're no longer born in sin. We're no longer born separated from God. 
So the whole gospel is not needed after that? I don't see anywhere that's indicated. The transition was moving from the old covenant to the new, and once we get to the new, once the new is consummated in 70, a lot of people say, it's ended. (laughs) Well, you wasted a lot of time to stop there. No, that was the beginning of the new covenant. And men still need the gospel. And men still you know, need the Scriptures to come to that. So, yes, there are verses of first fruit that deal with them. And again, in this text, I just don't think that's a good translation, but that doesn't matter, alright? I don't think that it's referring strictly to them. There's no doubt there's Scriptures that apply only to that time. We have to discern that. But God wrote the New Testament to churches, and we're a church, We're part of the family of God. Much instruction in there is for us. Hi, David. It's Lori from Tampa. In regards to Acts 16.31, if all we have to do is believe to be saved, where does baptism come into that? It doesn't. It doesn't. If all. That's not if all we have to do. Here's the main thing you have to understand. You can't do that unless God gives you life. And then you can on baptism, my position is baptism was a first century deal, okay? And I struggled with this before I even came to Preterist. I'm baptizing people and I'm like, oh, this is such a big deal. I'm like, why? What's it saying? What's it doing? I understand in the first testament and the first century, these people, it lost, they lost family, they lost all kinds of things because they were being baptized, okay? So I'm not convinced the baptism of the Lord's Supper is for today. Well, we do Lord's Supper. Why? We want to. We're not commanded. We don't think we have to. We want to do it, so we do it once a month. Baptism, if someone comes to me and wants to be baptized, I'll baptize them because that's what they want. I don't think it's necessary. I don't think it's, you know, part. And and I would challenge you, if you're interested in this, Kelly Burke's series on baptism, is it'll it'll blow your mind, okay? So look that up, and it's like, I don't know, eight, nine, ten things on baptism, but it's really good. So, you know, I don't think baptism fits into that. Here's another thing, as long as we're just throwing crazy stuff out. I don't believe repentance is part of that. Now, this is where people really go crazy. Why, are you nuts? Well, here's why I don't think repentance is part of that, okay? The Gospel of John was written specifically that you may believe Yeshua is the Christ. And John never mentions repentance. So he wrote a whole Gospel to tell you how to be saved, but left out a key part. I'm like, that's kind of ridiculous, John, Okay. Now, it all depends, too, repentance. What is what, Metanoia, the word, means to change your mind. So if you want to take it in the etymology of the word, change your mind, I'm all with you. Because you thought Christ wasn't anything, now you believe He is. Oh, you changed your mind, okay? But its usage is normally to turn from sin. And that's how people use it. You have to turn from sin in order to be saved. I can't turn from sin, I'm a sinner. Once God saves me, then things can happen, Okay. But that's not part of the gospel, people. Let's keep it simple. God saves sinners. You don't have to perform. You don't have to do things. When Jesus was at the pool of Bethesda, he chose who to heal. (laughs) Thank you. There were obviously others there who would like to be healed, but he didn't heal them. He chose whom he chose. I know, how rude is that? Could he have saved every paralytic, every sick person at that pool? Yes. Could have just waved his hand and they'd all got up and ran. Again, he's making choices. And Yahweh chose Israel out of all the nations of the earth. Why? Was it a good choice? They're great people. <laughs> no, I think here's the thing. God starts with Adam. Adam blew it. Okay? 
let me let me take a whole nation. We'll deal with this whole. They blew it. Okay, we no no one's doing. Christ comes and fixes it for us. Okay. This was such a profound and deep understanding of God's love for who He chooses. Thank you for your teaching. My husband and myself have been a, a part of the online service for quite some time now and truly blessed. Thank you, guys. This is uh, from uh, Vikram and Joanne. I, I appreciate that, guys. Thanks for letting me know you're there. David, aren't some who teach at your yearly conference... Oh, that's the last week. Best... <laughs> Vessels of wrath and, and vessels of mercy, Romans 9, 22-23. Good word, David, thank you. Yes, I mean, you know, it's funny. Romans 9, you know, it, how do you get through Romans 9 as an Arminian, you know? And I remember the first time in my church I taught on Romans 9, one of the guys came to me, a friend of mine, he'd been a Christian, raised in a Christian home, always in churches. He brought his Bible to me, and it was marked up everywhere. He turned to Romans 9, not a mark. He says, I've never, ever heard anybody teach on this. I'm like, that's because you've been in the wrong churches, you know. <laughs> Arminian is not going to deal with Romans 9, okay. We can't hear the questions from your audience in your church. Why not pass a mic around? Uh, people get mic shy when you stick a mic in their face. They don't want to say anything. I, I should be repeating them, and I'm sorry. I'll try to do that. Yeah, well, the congregational mic is on, right? So, yeah. I know it doesn't pick it up very well. Yeah, there you go. Okay, I think we got everything here. Hang on one second. Let me check this. <laughs> All right, Doug asked this question. Why does God tell us to forgive and pray for our enemies when he damns his? damns his enemies, okay? Well, first of all, again, he's God. He can do whatever he wants to do. You got to, you know, I mean, I don't think we're grasping the concept of God. One day, God is there with the, you know, fellowshipping with the Trinity. He decides, I want a family, so he creates the divine council, and he's fellowshipping with them. And then at a point in time, he says, I, wanna, I want more people in the family. I'm going to create man. And so he just speaks and creation comes into place. And people want to say, hey, you shouldn't do this or that. This is, when you get a concept of who God is, the why questions have to stop. You're God. My only response is bowing in admiration, you know, what, to whoever you are and what you're doing, okay? Uh, yeah, we, we do. We have, a, uh, we have an elaborated view of who we are. You know, people say, well, if you're a Calvinist, why preach the gospel? Because I'm told to. By a sovereign God. So I guess I'll just obey. Well, he's going to save who he's going to save. He is. But guess what? It's so exciting to be part of that. I'll tell you. Again, it is so exciting to be part of that. When you're sharing with people and you see them come to life and their lives change. And it's just, it's an amazing thing. Our God is awesome. Anthony? He did make us, we are his creation and stuff, but I don't I just think sometimes I wonder, you know, that last comment. I just wonder sometimes. It's like he owes us something to know, give us the knowledge that he has. Yes. Yeah. That is the case. You know? Well, I, I, I think that's. I think people think that God owes them something. Yeah, he doesn't you know? owe mercy at all. No, he doesn't owe mercy. He doesn't owe grace. He doesn't owe justice. God's all God's attributes put together. You know, one of his attributes is wrath. Right. 
People, we don't like that attribute. We like love. God, just be love. Get rid, get rid of all those other things, you know? And that's how most people look at it. God, you should get rid of those bad attributes and just have your good ones. He's allowed to demonstrate his wrath. That's part of who he is. You know, and if you've got a problem with God's plan, you can talk to him later about it, you know, but I don't think you really want to. Just read about Job and Job, God's response to Job. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, you who have understanding. Surely you were there. Job's like, oh, no, I really wasn't. Okay, then shut up. <laughs> that was the end of it. <laughs> that was the end of it. Job says, oh, I've heard of you with the hearing of a medium, but now my eyes see you and I abhor myself. Man. Get a picture of God, who He is, and it's just, I'll tell you, it'll humble you, it'll put you on your knees, it'll put you in tears when we really let God be God. The God of Scripture, not the God of our imagination. The God that's declared in the Bible, who speaks and things come into existence. The God of our feelings. Yeah, the God of our feelings. We, people, we want God, we want a God we formed in our own image. That's not a God of the Bible. Uh, somehow it got to be one o'clock. Those of you who are watching live, thanks for being with us. I appreciate the questions coming in. Thanks for joining us. Again, I, I'm not being a smart aleck here. If you're an Arminian, give me some feedback. I want to hear what you do with some of those verses because I, I was an Arminian once. I know all the verses you guys use. You know, whosoever will may come. That's true. Whosoever will may come. But guess what? You're not going to will to come unless God gives you life. Okay? All right. So. Guys, thanks for being here. I appreciate you all being. Let's close with a word of prayer. We're done for today. Father, thank you. Thanks for just the time to spend in the Word of God, Lord. And I pray we would have the heart of Bereans. We'd search things out. We'd dig. We'd try to understand. But most of all, Lord, I pray that we'd understand that you've given us two commandments. Love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. Lord, empower us to do that, to be people who live the Christian life who are an epistle, living epistle, Lord, that people can read. Thank you for your grace to us, Lord. We love you. Amen. Amen. Thanks, folks. Appreciate you being here. <clears throat>